0: Corinthians chapter 8 is actually a chapter about Christian liberty. How far can I take my Christian liberty? What do I do in the gray areas of life? And how do I determine whether I can do something or not do it? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it sin or is it not? Now we're going to look at that today from this chapter. And for some of you, as we read through the scriptures today, this might be a little bit hard for you to understand. Don't worry about that because we're going to back up. We're going to go through it all to help you understand it. Now, here's the way that this passage starts in 1 Corinthians. The question in the Corinthian church is about eating meat that has been offered to idols. Is it all right to eat that meat or is it wrong? We don't, we don't have that problem, do we? We're not faced with eating meat to idols. But the principle that's dealt with here in this chapter We deal with it every single day of our lives as we live in different gray areas. I'd like you to stand, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to read the entire 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. That means love edifies, love builds up. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and there is none other God but one. There are no other gods but the one God, and so we don't worry about worshiping idols. For though there be that are called gods, Whether in heaven or in earth, as there be God's many and Lord's many. In other words, Paul's saying there are many different gods that the people there worship. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. There's a verse that that our scientists and people in our schools need to get a hold of because all things were made by God. He he did it all. Verse number 7, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worst. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Here's the question we're going to be dealing with. Weak Christians and mature Christians. For if any man see thee with hath knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye so sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. You might want to underline verse number 13 because this is what the whole passage boils down to. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. Help us as we look into your word to learn these great principles that we can live by. Help us to understand better today, Lord, what to do in areas where the Bible does not specifically address certain questions of our lives. Give us your wisdom and your power today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In these past few messages, we've been talking about Uh, several questions that the Corinthians had and things that they'd written to Paul about. They were asking questions about marriage, and we've talked about that in the last three marriages, about marriage and divorce. They were asking Paul questions like, is it all right for a person who is saved to be married to an unbeliever? Should they divorce that person if they get saved? Is it all right for a Christian to get a divorce? Should a person that's single seek to be married, or should he prefer to stay single? Is that the best way to live? And so the Corinthians had lots of different questions. Well, in this chapter, it appears that they're asking another question, and that is that some of the members of the church were eating meat that had been offered to idols. Is it all right for a Christian to do that, or or is that wrong? Is that a sin? And uh, this particular idea, or an answer to the question, cannot be found in any particular Old Testament scripture. Now, that's all they had to deal with then was the Old Testament. The New Testament was in the process of being written. And so they didn't have anything but Old Testament scriptures. Now, as I stated earlier, we do not have this particular problem that these Corinthians had, but we do face similar issues. And Christians are divided today over many different issues in which the Bible does not give us a very clear, direct answer to tell us whether this thing is right or that is wrong. And so there are many... Christians in many churches that fight over certain issues and and questionable practices. For instance, is it all right for a Christian to play cards? Is it all right for a Christian to drink alcohol? Can we go to movies? Can we dance? Can women wear pants and can they wear shorts? Is it all right to watch a football game on Sunday? What kind of music ought we ought to listen to? And those are all different kinds of questions that people fight over. And the reason that we fight over these things is because the Bible does not, in a point-blank fashion, address these different issues. Not every issue is spelled out in the Bible to say, well, you are forbidden to do this thing, but it's all right to do something else. In many churches, they have their Christianized rules, and they set down their rules, and they make those things a test of fellowship. And if you don't dot your I's and you don't cross your T's exactly like they do, then you are an ungodly, unspiritual person. Last year, I told you about one of our missionaries, that that some of the churches that were supporting him actually dropped support of this missionary because when he put out a DVD presentation of his ministry, he had a picture of a woman in there that was wearing a pair of pants. And these people thought that the music that was playing on the DVD was ungodly. And so they dropped this missionary support. Sometimes churches get into these legalistic principles and they simply do not make sense. Now, these things are opinions that people stand on. And these folks make their opinions as weighty as the scriptures themselves. So this is the problem. Is everything black or white? What do you do in the gray areas that the Bible really doesn't talk about? Well, let's see what's going on in this chapter. We're going to try to answer some questions about it today. First, we're going to deal with the black problem. To the Corinthians, they have a very serious problem, they think. Is it all right to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? Now, before Paul came uh, to the city of Corinth with the gospel of Christ, all of these people were involved in idol worship. They would go into the temples. They would bow down before the idols. They would take their offerings there and they would offer their their offerings, their animals, their meat, and they would put it before that idol, and they would worship that idol. In their public and their private ceremonies, people would take a large amount of meat, they would take it into the temple, and they would sacrifice it to that statue or that idol. The priest in the temple would take a portion of the sacrifice that was given. That's how they made their living, that's how they got their food. And so the priest would take a portion of the sacrifice... But you have a large portion of the sacrifice that's left over. So when you've done sacrificing your meat or your animal before this this heathen idol, what do you do with the rest of the meat? What are you supposed to do with that? Well, what they would do is they would sometimes take that home. They would invite all their family and their friends over. They'd have a great big barbecue. And they would eat this meat that was offered to an idol. Now, this is the question that these Corinthian people are, are asking here. If I'm invited to someone's house and they're eating this meat that's been offered to an idol, what do I do? Now, remember, all of these Corinthian church members had come out of this background. All of them had been idol worshipers. And so now they're trying to rid themselves of all the different practices and they're trying to live like good Christians and do what Christians are supposed to do. Now, just like in today's society, in today's churches, there are two types of Christians that were in the Corinthian church. There are the strong Christians. These are Christians that have been in the faith. They know what the Bible says. They believe the Word of God. They've had some experience. But there are also weak Christians in the church. Now, Paul speaks to the the strong Christians in the church, and he tells them, it's all right if you eat that meat that's offered to the idol. He says in verse number 4, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is none other God but one. In other words, he's saying... An idol is just a dumb thing. It's not a living thing. It has no power. It can't do anything. So meat that's offered to an idol has no consequence, no significance at all. And so if you eat that meat, it's not a sin to eat it. It doesn't mean anything. Now the problem, though, is that you have weak and immature Christians also in the Corinthian church, and these Christian people they don't have the same experience. They're not rooted in the faith. They don't have enough knowledge to understand all of these things. And so when they came out of that idol worship, they still aren't too sure about idols, and they're not too sure that if they partake in eating meat that's been offered to an idol, that somehow they're still not upholding those same old practices. Somehow they're still worshiping the idol. What Paul is trying to teach, that even though there's nothing at all wrong with that meat, you can eat it without consequence, you can eat it, Go on your way. It's not a sin. You're not worshiping the idol. But his principle here is if it causes a weak Christian to be offended by that, then he says you ought not to do it. Now, you don't need to eat the meat. You don't have to eat it. It's not required. So if it's not something that you have to do, then why do you take a chance on offending a weaker Christian? Now, let me give you just a little bit more background. Some people thought that there were demons that lived in the meat. What would you do if you took a piece of meat and you left it sitting out for a while? Wouldn't be long until that meat would actually come alive with maggots. Now, some of you, if you've ever eaten Brother Dalton's Cajun cooking, you may think, well, there's demons in that meat. But to these these people, these ancient people, they didn't understand that where those maggots came from. They didn't understand that's flies that land on the meat. The flies lay their eggs, and all they could see was the result of that. And so they thought that that was the result of demons that were in the meat. So what they would do is they take the meat to uh, the idol, and they sacrifice it before the idol, and then their God would protect them from the demons that are in the meat. Now, they were afraid those demons would get inside of them if they ate it, so they sacrifice it to their God in order to get rid of those demons. That's for their protection. So they had some very strange ideas, and it was very confusing for weak Christians. So they thought, these weak Christians thought, that if they ate this meat offered to an idol, they're still upholding some of those old beliefs that they were in. So you see the problem that they have? It doesn't really have anything to do with us at all, but the principle is still here. We're faced with the very same thing. So here is the problem for Christians today. How much should another person's convictions control my actions. How much should what another person believes control what I do? Well, some of us grew up in families where there were certain things that were definitely considered to be wrong. If you grew up in the Bible belt like I did, then you know what I'm talking about. It was wrong to dance. It was wrong to play cards. It was wrong to go to the movies. When I was a teenager or a young person growing up, I should say, we never had a deck of cards in the house of any kind. We didn't even have any old maid cards in the house. And that was the reason for that was because my dad associated playing cards with his old lifestyle. Now, before he was saved, and this was before I was born, but before he was saved, he used to invite his friends over. And uh, my dad was not a drinker. But his friends would drink, and they would smoke, and he'd invite them to come over and play pinochle. Well, my dad associated playing cards with that old lifestyle that he was in. So he decided we're not going to have cards in our house because that looks like something that a Christian wouldn't do. Now, later, as we got older, uh, when I got into my teenage years, we were allowed to play rook, but we still couldn't have any type of face card like the regular playing cards that you play with in the house because that was simply too much like gambling. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but but years ago, playing dominoes used to be really big among Baptists, and that's because they didn't believe in having cards, and so they spent their time playing dominoes. Well, here in, in the year 2008 in California, it's not likely that anyone's going to be led astray by playing cards. But what if there's a weak Christian among you, and you may be sitting there playing poker, and you're just doing that for fun, you you know, there's no money exchanged here, but you're playing poker, what will a weak Christian think? And the principle here is that it hurts your testimony, and you really ought to think twice what you do in the presence of a weak Christian so that you don't offend that weaker brother. Now, another example that I could give you is in the restaurants that we eat in. Now, many of you go to restaurants where uh, there is a bar there and there's a TV, And you can go in and you can uh, sit in the bar and you can watch television even though you don't uh, drink anything. Now, here's a real good example why that's wrong. Several months ago, I was eating at Chili's and there was another local pastor that was there and he came over to my table. I wasn't sitting in the bar and neither was he. But he came over to my table and he said, I'm here with some other pastors and uh, I ordered a beer and he said, none of the other pastors would order anything and drink with me. Well, I understood why they wouldn't. But here is a man who's a pastor of a local church right here in Roner Park. He ordered a beer and couldn't understand why they wouldn't drink with him. Now, I'm not sitting in the bar. But if that man had that kind of testimony, I can imagine what it would have been like if I had been sitting in the bar and some people come by, they would say, well, there's Pastor Smith sitting in the bar. He's tying one on again. And that would present a bad testimony. Now, do you see what I mean here? Is there a command in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not sit in the bar at Chili's? There's no command in the Bible that says that. But there is a principle. There's a principle that says, Do not offend a weaker brother. And so how much do I let another person's uh, beliefs control my actions? Well, if it's going to be a bad testimony for a weak Christian, if it's going to lead them away from Christ, then what I need to do is to curtail my Christian liberty. I don't have to do all the things that I can do. I have to be concerned how it affects a weaker Christian. Now, that brings me to the white principle. The second thing is the white principle. And there are basically two white principles that Paul gives here. The Christians had a very, uh, Corinthians had a very different, uh, prob, a very definite problem. They had questions that they needed answered. They presented to Paul the black problem. Now, Paul comes back to them with two white principles to live by, two things that you really ought to do. The first one you need to understand is that knowledge without love produces arrogance. Knowledge without love produces arrogance. Now look at First Corinthians eight verse one. Now it's touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, that's love, love edifieth. Now knowledge will puff you up. Knowledge can make you arrogant. Now basically, Paul is saying to these strong Christians, uh, "You understand enough to know that you can eat that meat that's offered to an idol? That's really not a problem for you. But look at verse number 6. He says, But to us there is one God, the Father of whom we're all things, and we in him, and one Lord by Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. But listen to this, verse 7. Howbeit there is not that knowledge, that uh, not that in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it, "...as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled." So Paul says, not everybody has the same knowledge. Not everybody knows as much about the Bible as you do. Not everybody is as strong in the faith as you are. Now, the problem here actually goes deeper than offending a weak brother by things that we do. And that's because there are many Christians who think that they are so mature... ...that they say, well, I can do all of these different things. I've been set free. I have my Christian liberty... I don't need to worry about any of the gray areas. You see, they become puffed up with knowledge, and they begin to look down on weaker brothers. Look what he says in verse number 9. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Now, there are some Christians that are so free in their Christian living that they actually become loose. And these are Christians who say, there's no restriction on this. There's no command in the Bible that says, I can't do this. And so I'll go ahead and do it because I know it's not going to affect my eternal salvation. I'm saved forever. I've been set free from the condemnation of sin. So I don't need to worry about all of these things. Now, the first thing that I would say to a Christian who says that, check up on your own salvation. Because a Christian really wants to be a spiritual person. A real believer and true follower of Jesus Christ wants to be someone who who acts like a Christian in whatever he does. Salvation and sanctification are real issues for Christians, and they want to live holy lives and be good testimonies. So a real Christian will always look at his brother first. He'll always think about, how's that going to affect that person? How is my action going to affect someone else? It might be all right for me to do this. It may not be a sin of itself. But how is that going to affect other people? So the first white principle is knowledge without love produces arrogance. If this knowledge that I have of Jesus Christ, if it does not produce in me an attitude that I am a humble person, I am a loving person, a gentle person, I look upon the needs of others, then something is seriously wrong in my Christian life. What is my knowledge really telling me? And there are many Christian people who are determined they are going to do exactly what they want to do. Doesn't matter how it affects anybody else. I'll do what I want. Now, the second white principle that we learn from the passage is that knowledge with love produces accommodation. Have you ever heard of a Christian doctrine called accommodation? It's a New Testament principle. What is accommodation? Well, let me give you a Dictionary definition, you won't find this definition in the Bible, but accommodation means to make adjustments for the sake of another's comfort. In other words, what you're going to do, you're going to change your behavior in order to make that other person more comfortable. So you always ask the question, if I do this, will this make another person comfortable or uncomfortable? I think back on the things that we were told when I was younger that we couldn't do, and I think about the question: Can Christians dance? And my answer to that is some can and some can't. I think there was a, I think there was a movie that came out a few years ago that white men can't dance. So that might be the way it is with Christians. Well, you might think, you know, I can't, I, I can dance with a clear conscience. That really doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me to dance. Well, the question though is, does it make another Christian uncomfortable? I don't intend to make today's message, a a personal list of all the do's and don'ts that I think you can and you can't do. But let me say this to young people and and perhaps to others. I've heard about things that go on in our public schools today, uh, the dances that they have, and some of those things that kids try to do have been banned. And, you know, they they watch out for that so they can't do it. I'll just tell you this. If there are things in dances today that make non-Christians uncomfortable then you can be sure of this, that Christian young people ought not to do it. I I could say this, I think, that modern dance is not for Christians. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. But let me give you another example of this. I learned a lot from my father about Christian accommodation. I've told you this story before, uh, but when my my, my father became the pastor of his first church, it was a little rural church in, in the hills of Kentucky, and all the people in the church were farmers, and these farmers grew tobacco. And, of course, tobacco, uh, that's a big crop in Kentucky. So all the farmers grew tobacco, and they used tobacco. But it wasn't uncommon for you for us to see people out in the church parking lot, and they would be smoking cigarettes as they stand out there, and they talk in the parking lot. And let me just say this. We have a rule against that here. Uh, no smoking on church property, and not even in your car. What you get out off of our property before you smoke. But... Uh, there were people that stood around in the, in the uh, church parking lot and they were smoking. Now, of course, those people would not smoke when they came inside of the church building. But many of the people also liked to chew tobacco. Well, we had this huge, this great big potbelly stove that was sitting in the church. and Everybody knows what a potbelly stove is. That, that's how we kept the church warm in the wintertime. And so my dad would be preaching and uh, maybe there was a moment of silence for just a second and you'd hear this. That was somebody spitting on the potbelly stove. Well, my dad started preaching about that. He said he's going to do something about this. So he he started preaching against smoking and chewing tobacco. Well, there was one person in the church who didn't like that preaching. And so he said, you drink coffee. And I think drinking coffee is just as bad as smoking. If you drink Dalton's coffee or Zoe's coffee, it is as bad as smoking. (laughs) But uh, my dad said... My dad said, well, if that offends you, and that's what you think, then I'll stop drinking coffee, so you can't use that as an excuse. That was when my dad was, oh, I guess 27, 28 years old. He died when he was 73, and even after he left that church, he never drank a cup of coffee from that time on. He felt that somebody might have an excuse if he did that, and so he didn't want to be a bad testimony for someone else. Well... You know, all of us know here, there's nothing wrong with drinking a cup of coffee, with the exception of Zoe and Dalton's. There's nothing wrong with that. But the principle of Christian accommodation says, if this will offend you, and if it wounds your weak conscience, then I won't do it, even if there's no sin involved in this. Now, you see what I mean? Now, People would say, well, that is just way too far out. You're totally crazy to think like that. But this is exactly the way that Paul thought. He would not take his Christianity too far. And so he was very careful about how he used his Christian liberty in a very gray world. So what Paul is teaching here, put others' feelings ahead of yourself because that's what real love is. Now, that leads me to the last point to the day. Is everything black or white? What do you do when you're in the gray areas? How do you determine what you're supposed to do in the gray areas when there aren't any certain scriptures that back up what you think you want to do? So we have the black problem. We have the white principles. Now, now I want to talk to you about the gray practice. What do you do about gray areas? Pastor Smith, here's something that I want to do, but I can't find a verse of scripture in the Bible that tells me whether I can or whether I can't do this. I don't know if it's right or wrong. So, what do I do? Well, next, we're going to talk about the five fold test for moral decisions. How do you determine if what something you want to do is the right thing or the wrong thing? Well, we're going to give you some tests that you can apply. Apply these to any moral decision. It'll help you to figure out what's right and what's wrong. How far can you take Christian liberty? Now, I want you to take some extra notes today. Young people, you need to take notes. Old folks, take notes because you may be faced today, even today on Sunday, about some things you should or should not do, and you don't have any scripture in the Bible to tell you what to do. So let's listen to this. Number one, the first test that you have is the edification test. The edification test is found in 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The edification test is for you personally. Edify is a word that means to build up. There are many things that you can do as a Christian, and that's what 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about. All things are lawful unto me. But the question is, if I do this thing... Will it hinder my Christian life? If I decide that I'm going to do this, is this something that I can do it with a clear conscience, that I can say I'm doing the right thing, I know that it's okay, because it's going to help me in my Christian life? Or is this something that's going to hinder my Christian life? Will this uh, push me further away from the Lord? Well, if it hurts you personally and causes you to go further away from Christ rather than near Him, you ought not to do it. There are many things that you don't find out until later that you did them that it was the wrong thing to do. Well, here's a very good principle to live by, that if you have any question about any practice, if you have to convince yourself that it's all right for you to do it, stay away from it. It's probably wrong. So the edification test, that's number one. Number two is the example test. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The things that you do ought to be a good example for other believers. And so you ask yourself, if what I'm going to do right now, will it help another believer? Will it build them up? Could I say to another believer, you can do what I'm doing and you're all right? Now the edification test, that's for you spiritually. But this example test is for other believers spiritually. And if you have a weaker, younger Christian who doesn't know as much Scripture, as much about the Bible as you do, can you say, I'm going to do this, and I can advise other people, uh, immature Christians, you can follow my example. Remember, Paul said, be imitators of me, be followers of me, imitate what I do. And Paul could say that because his life was exemplary in the cause for Christ. And so if you get ready to do something, ask, well, will this Will this be something that I can advise others that they can do? Can they follow my example? And if it passes that test, it's okay. Test number three is the evangelism test. I want you to turn very quickly, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. I'd like everybody to see this. Matthew 12, verse 30. And read it for yourself. And the question that we have here is, Is will this draw other people to Christ? That's the evangelism test. Now, in Matthew 12, verse 30... Jesus is speaking. He says, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now you're probably thinking, why would you read that scripture? What does that have to do with anything? Well, I read it for this reason. Everything that you do is either bringing people closer to Christ or it's pushing people further away. Everything that you do has an effect on the lost people of the world. The edification test is for you spiritually. The example test is for other believers spiritually. This test is for unsaved people, lost people. And so is what you're going to do, is it going to draw people to Christ? Now Jesus says, now read it again here, He that is not with me is against me. Jesus says, you are either for me or you are against me. There is no middle ground for you to stand on here. Every word that you say is either going to have an effect to bring people closer to Christ or it's going to have a negative impact and and push people further away. And so when you get ready to do something, you ask yourself, is what I am going to do? Will this push people away from Jesus or will this bring people closer to him? And that's what your whole Christian life is about anyway. It's about your relationships in this world, your whole life, and your interaction with those that are around you. Test number four is the exaltation test. And this is a test that says, If I do this, will it bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, Whether, therefore, ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now there, Paul's talking about ordinary things. Some people think, well, I can't glorify God unless I get up in front of the church and sing a hymn. I can't glorify God unless I teach in a Sunday school class. I can't glorify God unless I get up behind the pulpit and I preach a sermon. All of those things glorify God, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about common, ordinary things that you do in your life, even right down to your eating and drinking. These are things that can be done to the glory of God. Now, you know what I think is really interesting about this? You have these churches that have all of their rules. They have the do's and the don'ts. The preacher gets up there, and he beats you down with all the nitpicky things that he talks about in your life, things that you ought not to do. And he says to you, if you do these things, you do not bring glory to God. If you're a woman and you wear pants and you do that, you don't bring glory to God. If you go to movies, you're an unspiritual person. But then... It's kind of funny that many of those preachers stand up there and they're 300 pounds overweight. They're gluttons. And they seem to forget that Paul says right here, Whether, therefore, ye eat or drink, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Well, glory to God, I buffet my body daily. The exaltation test says, Does this bring glory to God? And if what you're about to do, you cannot say, If I do this, it will bring glory to God. You ought not to do it. If it does, then it's all right. Now, number five, our last one, is the embarrassment test. Now, this is one that is the very best of all of these, and, and you need to get this one down because this clears up a lot of gray areas. Here it is. Would I be ashamed or would I be embarrassed to be found doing this when Jesus comes back? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The Bible teaches that Jesus can come back at any moment. All things will change, Scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye. It says that Jesus will come back like a thief in the night. We do not know when Jesus is coming back again. Now, if we did know that, then I'm sure that everybody in this room today, you would start to do something. That would be exactly what Jesus would want you to do if you knew that he was coming back right now. If I said, Jesus is coming back in five minutes, everybody in this church, you go straight down to your knees, even though we don't have kneelers here, you go straight down to your knees, and you would say, glory to God, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. All of us would do that because we know Jesus is coming back. If I said, Jesus is coming back in one hour, many of you may run out to the parking lot, head across the street, and start knocking on doors. And telling people, you'd be witnessing about Jesus because you want to be found doing something that you should be doing when Jesus comes back. But the truth is, we don't know when Jesus is coming back and Jesus didn't tell us on purpose. And the reason that he didn't was to give us the incentive to do what we should be doing anyway. We always ought to be doing what we would not be embarrassed to be found out doing if Jesus came back. You know, if if I knew that Jesus was coming back during a church service, if I said, hey, everybody, Jesus is coming back on Wednesday night. Every member of Brian Baptist Church would be in church on Wednesday night. I, that cure my Wednesday night blues forever. All of you would be here. But we don't know that. We don't know when he's coming back. Jesus didn't tell us. And so instead, he gave us the incentive of doing what we should be doing anyway so that we are not embarrassed when he comes. Now, young people, you may have questions about this, and many adults too, is... Uh, you may ask a question, how far can I go on a date? And I'm not talking about as far as Nevada or San Francisco either. How far can I go on a date? Can I hold hands? Can I kiss? Can I go a little bit further than that? And the answer to the question is, would I be embarrassed if Jesus came back and found me doing this? And the same principle holds true for adults. If you want to know, is it right or it's wrong, apply the embarrassment test. So how do I find out about all these things that aren't in the Bible? There's no specific scripture about them. These are gray areas. How do I know? You apply all of these tests. You live by those two white principles that we gave you just a moment ago. Now, we're living in a world today that says me, mine, myself. It's all about me. I'm the center of my little universe here. And yet Jesus teaches something very much different. Jesus said that if a man will follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. And so it's not all about me. And you have to deny yourself in order to follow Christ. Now, as we close the message today, let, this is our last statement for today. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I might live for thee. That's the refrain of a song that was written by Charles Meigs in 1917. He wrote a beautiful song. And he said, Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others. That I might live for thee. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13 again. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. That's the main principle of the message today. And all of these things reflect the attitude of Jesus. Paul did not overexercise Christian liberty. He restrained himself in certain areas if that would help other people. And do you know that Jesus is the best example of this of, of all? When Jesus was about to be taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, this was just before he went to the cross, Jesus said, Don't you know that I can call twelve legions of angels and they would come and deliver me? Jesus He could have stopped right then. He could have avoided the cross. He said, Father, take me home right now. I'm not going to the cross. But I'm so thankful for this, that Jesus made an accommodation. You remember that principle of accommodation? You alter certain things in order that it might be for the good of others. Now, I thank the Lord for this. I thank Jesus for this, that he did decide to go to the cross. He altered his comforts and his power and his prestige. And he went to the cross and died for me. And he did it in order to bring me closer to God. And that's what God wants you to do. If you'll make the adjustments that are necessary to your life in order to help your weaker Christian brother, I promise you that God will bless you. So is everything black or white? The answer is no. There are lots of gray things. And the question is, what do you do in the gray areas? Make sure that you're doing the right thing in the gray areas let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word and lord even though there are so many things that we can't find uh, answers to in the bible on specific issues let you've given us principles to live by help us to look for those principles and understand lord that most of all that what all we do must bring glory to you speak to our people's hearts today lord draw us close to you help us lord that we might be accommodating people, that we'd always look out for the needs of others. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.